Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from genuine bona fide institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the conference room at the Jed Clampett Center for the Study of Rural Alpine Sociology here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we're talking about the early Iron Age site of Har Adir in the Upper Galilee, previously known for the chance find of a steel pick, maybe the earliest steel pick ever. A new publication puts the site back on the map. Whose site was this, and what was it doing on top of a remote mountain? Were these 11th century BCE Canaanites, Israelites, Phoenicians, or just mountaintop hillbillies who weren't having any of this big city identity stuff, thank you very much? What does this tiny site tell us about bigger geopolitical things? What are polities, and what is a village state, anyway? Just don't call the Iron One period a dark age, because we're not having any of that nonsense. Okay, this should be the podcast, Jerry. Um, <laughs> okay, here's the lightning round. Um, apropos and psychologically uh, penetrating as, as usual. Most scenic mountains ah. of, of your experience. Hmm. Okay. The Catskills? Why not? <laughs> the Poconos? <laughs> the Poconos? They're, you're, they're majestic. You're hosting the Poconos for the most in the Poconos. I was going to say the, the Judean hills outside of Jerusalem. Oh, those are very nice. Those are nice. Yeah. I will say the... Um, the Altai Mountains. The, yeah, the Hindu Kush in... Um, <laughs> Northern, um, now you're just showing off. Yeah, I know. In north northwestern Pakistan, those uh, that that was those are beautiful. Yep. Yeah, they're no they're no Poconos though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're nice. Well, you're, you're you're right about that because you know you cannot <laughs> you cannot get a, a good piece of brisket up there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah good start yeah. now i forget what i was going to say um <laughs> probably the cascades looking yeah. uh yeah. looking to the right no to the east <laughs> from from you know seattle or something right yeah the cascades yeah. are beautiful too There's, mountains are generally beautiful yeah um, but mountains are gonna kill you how so gotta go you, yeah you gotta go up if you oh. go up there you get caught in the snow. You start eating the rest of the members of your party. Right, of course. <laughs> did, did you guys watch Yellow Jacket? Yellow Jackets? I think I watched two episodes at your recommendation and said, "Oh my god, I can't watch this." <laughs> it's quite a 
it's quite a mountain epic. No, I didn't. I didn't watch it. I I, I rewatched Dairy Girls recently. <laughs> there's there's no you know kind of they're not. It's not fraught in the same way. I think I mean, we're getting slightly off topic now. <laughs> well, what was the topic? I don't know. Oh, the topic is well. No, the topic is mountains and things that happen in the mountains. Ah. <clears throat> and uh, for example, the fortresses and polities. Fortresses and polities. So, does someone want to set this up? Rachel, you're always you're good right. at setting things up. Imagine if you will. Imagine if you will a, a, a mountain in Israel's north in the Galilee uh, where um, at, at, a, at a place called Mount Adir, where back in the 70s, excavations took place and they uncovered this small fortress. And then recently more excavations took place and did more digging in this same small fortress. And I think that's what we're going to talk about. I think we're going to be talking about what is this strong, a small fortress doing on in these mountains, on this mountain in the Galilee? In the Iron Age 1. In the Iron Age 1. Iron Age 1, yeah. So that's, that's the plan. We're going to speculate all about that. Right. Are there, <clears throat> I got to write down the word Poconos. <laughs> so one of the things that, that. that makes Haradir stand out so much, of course, is the purported find of a of a steel axe. Is it and steel? Steel pick. Steel pick. pick. And this was, of course, a, a very, you know, prominent kind of find that captured the imagination of Iron <clears throat> Age one scholars for, you know, the better part of 30 years. <clears throat> you know, this is the earliest steel and, you know, this suggests all levels of complexity and, you know, possibly, you know, Tolkien-esque dwarves <laughs> boiling in the recesses of the Galilee. Yeah, really. But, um, but lo and behold, it turns out that, uh, that it isn't a, uh, an Iron Age one artifact. It might be something later and we might never get the actual date of it. So one of the things that this recent uh, attention on Haradir has revealed is that what it was best known for uh, this steel pick uh, might not be steel and might not be Iron Age one. Right. I'm still, I, this might be too detailed for, for our podcast, but I'm still kind of bothered because the original report, <clears throat> published report on the pickaxe did say that it came under, under a floor level, I think. Um, so I'm assuming that that was deemed to be incorrect or, or unclear well, or... There was always a question about whether there was a pit. Right. Or something intrusive. And the the thing about these one period sites in in any highland area, in any mountains, but, you know, certainly in the Galilee, in the upper Galilee, is that, you know, some of the stuff sticks out and some of the stuff, you don't have to dig that much to find it. And it's all very, very um, mixed up because of vegetation. You know, there's scrub oak growing out of tree, uh, growing out of out of rock formations and all of that kind of stuff. Right, right. So the actual excavation is always a little bit, you know, um, squirrely. Right, and all these places get reused in in later periods in very ephemeral ways. You know, shepherds right. come along and they spend the night, or caravans right. and you know, <clears throat> love struck 
lovers who come for an assignation. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, that's actually never been, it's, it's never been proposed probably. Especially uh, <laughs> pickaxe carrying love struck lovers. Yeah. Well, there's some jokes there I'm not going to make because this Good. is a family style. Um, but, um, but we should also say that, that regardless of the pickaxe, um, it's the date of the site is, is clearly iron one. Right. right. And, and, but now uh, thanks to this new publication in, in the fall and a, a spate of, publicity surrounding it, we get to put the, the, uh, the site itself and the architecture and the phenomenon back on the map in a more appropriate way, not a, not a pick-centric kind of way. Right. You know, all this attention on this one admittedly lovely artifact really distorted the whole question of what, what's going on with this right. fortified little Little right. and it's little. It's like what fifty meters by fifty meters. Exactly. Yes. So there's this little yeah. right, this little trapezoidal fortress right. mm. uh, on a on a spitz in the middle of the upper gallery. Yeah, um, and I have a question about this kind of trapezoidal <laughs> idea in the first place because you know don't they measure, or is it intentional <laughs> that it's not a square? The trapezoid in in the Iron Age. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, did it make sense for some reason to have the walls be? Um, well, maybe it followed the topography. Right. Okay. Or, or um, maybe there needs to be some, you know, viewshed analysis because by having it as a trapezoid, you know, you would get to see the shadows of the mountains as they, as the sun set or stuff like that. That's good. <laughs> okay. Right. Or maybe they just got uh, some kind of local contractor. <laughs> who wasn't very good with right angles. Right. right. We've talked about that before, I think. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of, a lot of problems with contractors. Especially I mean, in the Iron Age. it's hard to get a contractor now who's good with right angles. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. <laughs> I don't think that's changed. Yeah. Okay. So we, we have this mountain uh, redoubt. And the question that uh, a lot of the recent uh, scholarship and reattention has focused on is, who does it belong to and what's it doing there? Okay. I posed, I, I posed the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, but aren't those really two questions? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess you said it. There were, <laughs> you said it clearly pointed out the, the duality of it. Well, well what? so what's it, what's it doing there? It's just sitting there. It's not a farming community kind of a place. It's a redoubt. It's a, it's a little, it does look kind of fortified. It's, and it's a it's a fantastic lookout, which is it, right how right. it came to the attention of people today. It's right. a fantastic so, view in all directions. Right. So there's because of the thick walls, because of the very you know, as you said, it's a very simple kind of structure. It's always immediately interpreted as a fortress. Right, and that is another question. Do we should should we pick that apart? Pick, pick that apart. Pick, pick. <laughs> That's all you people do is pick. <laughs> Only with steel picks. Um, so, if, well, I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think it isn't a fortress. I'm just saying it's very interesting how, you know, these kinds of interpretive assumptions just get woven into the fabric of the science. Because right. all the articles now focus a lot on the petrographic analysis of the pottery, which is really good. We've got coastal pottery. We've got locally made pottery. You know, we've got store jars of, of, a, of two different types circulating. And that petrographic analysis allows 
for some kind of you know geopolitical interpretation stuff coming from is stuff coming from Tyre is it coming from Akko is it coming from Tel Kaysan <clears throat> and and but with but on top of all that science you have this must be a fortress right and of course this is not dissimilar to the kinds of conversations that we had when Mount Ebal was excavated that it was immediately interpreted as a cult site and other people said no it's a watchtower or it's, there were other interpretations, but the big one was Watchtower. I can't remember. I know there was one other. And even Qumran has gone through this, that the initial interpretation of Qumran was as a, a scene community, but then it was a glass or perfume manufacturer or a Roman uh, villa. And, um, and so, I, I, I mean, when I sort of read about, you know, read these new, these new articles, it was like, yes, we're still stuck with the assumption that this is a fortress, which it may well be. It may well be. It has the thick walls, which I guess <clears> is, and it has the general shape and sort of casematey structure of some rooms. But, you know, I also would have liked there to be a whole bunch of weaponry found there. <laughs> well, I just would have liked there to be a couple of other suggestions as to what it might be. And, um, or at least allowing, opening it up. Yeah. We don't have to have everything always be either, you know, oriented towards military strategy and control or the other option, which is trade. And of course, trade gets brought into this whole thing. Um, and it's all sort of couched in the in the notion that the Iron Age one in the southern Levant is and they and one of the articles, I forget which one actually mentioned and said this is a dark age. And of course it's not a dark age there and dark ages don't exist just like golden ages don't exist. You know, these are complete, these are complete, you know, tropes, memes that get right. developed to bring a highlight to either a later period or an earlier a period that, you know, it, it just before, or just after to highlight what's going on in those periods. Right. But, you know, this isn't a, yeah, and one isn't a dark age. I mean, you know, Megiddo is a big operationalized Canaanite site into the 12th century, as is Beit Shan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we get Tel El Mary in, in the Jordan Valley is a big, you know, uh, not Jordan Valley, but, um, you know, in the, on the plateau, the plateau, which is a big Iron Age one site with the best preserved four room house that we have and lots of, you know, activities. Uh, that can be pointed to. So we have a lot of stuff going on in the Iron Age one. And um, definitely not a dark age. It's right. Yeah. Right. And we want to make that clear <laughs> to anyone who's listening. Should anyone be listening? It's not a dark age. Get that out of your head right now. But, and right. Not, you know what, you know and what we're else? not kidding. But you know, <laughs> we're, no, we're not kidding. No, we're not. no, but, and that's my point. We work we work backwards from these kinds of weird impressionistic historical abstractions. Ooh, Whoa. dark ages, golden ages, you know, right. bronze ages, copper ages. And then we, then we apply a series of kind of typological categories. There are fortresses, there are cities, there are this, there are that. And right. then you know, going backwards and backwards and backwards until we actually get to 
a couple a site with some walls and some pottery in it. Right. But right. you know what was not in this article, and, and this is a good thing that it wasn't in this article, not a single mention of the Bible, of the book of judges, of you know, the period of the settlement. So so this is archaeologists yeah, having nope. right, right? Yep. This is where my mind already uh, sort of <clears throat> immediately went. I do like the whole finding historical nuggets and yep. texts. Yep. And uh, so that was not in there. Um, I might put that in later in the podcast, but <laughs> yeah, well, no, kudos to the to the authors. So we don't. Have, you're right. That's a good point, and I didn't even think of that. That's a really good point. Um, and and so that's that's good. There is a lot of talk about you know geopolitical aspects of the Amarna period, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, sort of using that as a model of what might have, you know, existed and how this fortress might have fit in in a, the subsequent Iron Age one. Um, and of course, we, you know, the, how we understand the Amarna period is also pretty, you know. Flexible, malleable. <laughs> yeah, you know. Right. Um, and, and there was only, again, credit to the, to the author, only very, very limited ethno uh, assignment. The only ethnic right. ethnic group or ethno linguistic group or ethno, you know, thing mentioned were Phoenicians. Right. Uh, and there's a whole thing about <laughs> whether there really were Phoenicians in 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 reality, whether because they never called themselves. They that. never called themselves right. the well, Phoenicians. That's right, and that that sort of was something that, that that's you know. But that's fine as a kind. Should, of, let's call that a about, shorthand. If one uh, talks for, about Phoenicians in this time frame, though, one should just point out that they are basically the northern Canaanites. They're the northern right. Canaanite and, culture. Right. right. Yeah, who, that, the folks who live on the coast. Right. right. They're not and, that different from anybody else. <laughs> well, I don't think we're. <laughs> right. And, they're just like us. They're not that different. <laughs> right. And, and you know, there was a mention of, of Finkelstein's conception of new Canaanites, um, which I found kind of strange because the Canaanites are old. Right. And, and in, you know, in that article on Iron Age one that I had, that I wrote a couple of years ago, I talked about Canaanite continuity into the Iron Age. I mean, obviously there's Canaanite continuity into the Iron Age. Right. Just like, you know, <clears throat> how does national identity work in the late 19th, uh, late 18th century in the United States, right? Are, are, do they conceptualize themselves as Americans, as British? When does right. American culture and social norms actually right. emerge. Obviously, right. they all emerge later. You know, did they all have British accents? Well, whatever a, an 18th century British accent was, yes, they all had British accents. Right, so, Governor. Right. So, of course, but, uh, these are all Canaan. If you conjure new, new Canaan, then you can be talking about a town in Connecticut, too. So I kind of like that <laughs> term. And, and anybody who lives in New Canaan, Connecticut, I can assure you, would want nothing to do with the Upper Galilee. <laughs> right, or much less the old Canaanites in any way, shape, or form. Yes, I don't. Yes, they might get off the bus and have a nice hummus dinner, but other than that, <laughs> right. they they want to go straight to the beach. Right, then they're going. You know, they're going to go back to the damn panorama in right. Tel Aviv right. for the for the evening. So, um, so this, you know, yeah. Why talk about the Phoenicians when when it's pretty apparent that in the, you know, in the twelfth century. 
anybody who's living up there or anybody who is still using or had or you know displays any degree of cultural continuity with the preceding period are still Canaanites. Right. Right. So so let's let's kind of contextualize this a little bit more. So we had um, in in case our our listener has forgotten all of their their archaeology. Um, we had um, a thriving Canaanite culture in the Bronze Age, in the late Bronze Age, although Egypt was present too, and it all kind of well, collapsed. thriving. All right. It <laughs> well, I didn't realize it was thriving. It, look at places like Hitzor, all right? Um, Megiddo, whatever. Um, hey, Hitzor, please. <laughs> middle Bronze Age was thriving. Well, all right. The, the late I, I Bronze Age was... I mentioned Egypt, I mentioned, but you still got this cool material culture. I all... you can say late Bronze Age was thriving. Come on. All right. We have gem cops in the late Bronze Age. We had we what? Had greater Eastern Mediterranean co-prosperity sphere. There you go. And that's a, that's a late Bronze Age phenomenon. That's not a middle Bronze Age phenomenon. See? <laughs> well, uh, it always goes back. I, f- I forget who wrote this. Was it Anson Rainey? Uh, maybe it was about whether it was the best of times or the worst of times. <laughs> it was the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> Oh. It was a golden age and a dark age. <laughs> it's a floor <laughs> wax and a dessert there, I was waiting for somebody to use that line. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. As I, I, as I was saying, I everything kind track. of comes to a, a not so sudden, gradual crashing halt Sticky at around down. 1200. Um, and, well, I would um, disagree with that, but that never mind. That's, I'm, I'm just, yeah. All right. Disagree. There are no uh, sticky endings. In any in case. So, so theoretically the bronze age ends in 1200 and the iron age begins. And for many decades, there's been the question of this transition and was it smooth? Was it not smooth? Did Canaanite culture continue in spots? Did Israelite culture or proto-Israelite culture take over everywhere? So we're kind of dealing with this issue a little bit um, in terms of, of who who's living here and what are they doing? And and you know, and, and then that'll bring us into the discussion of polities. What did right. no, I, no, no. No. Oh no. <laughs> I think there has to be a, a discussion of the what they found on the ground, then a political reconstruction, and then a question of ethno-identification. Who were these people? You've got to complete backwards. Let's let's state quite clearly that the recent articles do avoid any kind of ethno-historical discussion. To their credit. Right. To their credit. And our, you know, we've really done a poor job there because we've immediately you know muddied the waters dived into the into the sticky swill of that right right sticky end of the pool okay so if you want to do that alex if you want to be systematic then (laughs) then fine right ahead be that way i was not i was not taking a systematic approach i was (laughs) no you very no you very much were you were just going from the the large to the small to the well, small, I, was, right? I was getting to why this period is of interest. And I, the way I approach it with my undergraduates is I immediately bring in, oh, I don't know, forum houses and stuff like this so that I can talk about different material culture coming into the hill country. And you know, then we can segue into Israelites, um, which we don't have to do. No, because they didn't. So why right. should we? But they do segue into lots and lots of political jargon that right. is not right. very 
useful or well explained or well designed. Right. That's the crux of the biscuit here. Well, can, I, can, I, uh, can I just throw something in here before we go back into the serious stuff, which is, is the lack of the mention of the Israelites, the elephant in the room, the elephant in the article? No. I don't think so. Okay. But you, if you, you can, you know, I'll get there. This I'll get is, there. You, you just put, the, you're the elephant's trunk under the, <laughs> into the tent now with this, with this stuff. So <laughs> thanks. My trunk yeah. Under the, yeah. <clears throat> no, you have a, you have a, a site. It has, it's 50 meters by 50 meters. It's a trapezoid. It has thick, thick-ish walls <clears throat> and a bunch of rooms and some store jars and maybe some other things. What is it? It's, it's not obviously some kind of gigantic fortress assertion of, you know, titanic military power. It's, a, it's an observation post, a trading post. It's fortified in the sense that, you know, it would take more than three guys to knock it over. <laughs> Probably take, you'd have to bring, you know, a couple of your cousins to, in order to take it over. That's if you feel like walking up to to, to the height that it's at. You can right. probably just walk around it and no one's going to, you know. They're, right. They're, they're not even going to see you. Down here. Right. 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 Well, yeah. And I, should we mention that like today, um, modern times, there's like a bird observation point there and also an army base there. So like, you know, the height and the view, which I guess you said before. It's still high. It's still <laughs> high. There's still a good view. Right. Yeah. Still a good view. Right. Okay. So, so what, who would build this and, and why? It's a, it's a good, good spot for observing birds and and the and the region right it's a it's a construction that would i don't know would it make a statement on the landscape maybe a little one <laughs> look at those guys yeah <laughs> way up top what the hell they're doing they're building something right who are those guys do we know those guys so what does that represent though is that <clears throat> is that an, an effort that a family makes, a clan, a tribe, or is it a product of that nebulous, wishy-washy, all-purpose, you know, polity word? Or is it entrepreneurial? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> I'm building this fortress. Right. Or, <laughs> or I'm just, I'm building this and, yeah, I'll sell... You, you want a cold drink? <laughs> I'll get you a cold drink. You, you know, you want a hot meal? I'll get you a hot meal. Right. Why right. isn't it a caravanserai? Exactly. Why? Right. That, that's yeah, I was just gonna say not on a, on a real trade route. There aren't real trade routes that are circulating in that part of the Upper Galilee. Right. And this is on a mountain. This isn't a, if you're on a trade route, you want to, yeah, it's not a great place to. Right. So there's all of that. Um, so who, who are you live, uh, building this thing? Right. That's what, that's and why are you doing it? Yeah. Well, according to the current thinking, it's, you know, some kind of a, uh, you know, military stronghold that is exercising some political control from a core area. Right. And, and then we get the terms polity and we get terms core, and we get a term, at one point it's referred to as a village state. And 
I think that when you start getting to the point of, of coming up with a concept like village state, I, th- I think that's when we need to, need to have a drink and <laughs> right. maybe, maybe a smoke and, and read right. breathe into a paper bag at the very yeah. least. Because when you start talking about village states, then you're just, you know, what are you talking about? That's a very so, good question. So what do we have in the Iron Age one? and in the upper Galilee. And they, they, these recent studies do a very nice job of talking about a bunch of sites that have not really been fully digested and talked right. about. Um, right. You know, Tel Don, Abel Bimaka, the recently newly... Uh-oh. Oh, he's, he's frozen. Oh, he's frozen. I'm gonna yeah. pause, I'm gonna pause. Okay. Okay. Can can you get your train of thought back? I I don't know. I, I it, it's interesting because it gives us it, it's bringing attention to uh, a neglected part of the Southern Levant in a period in which we have a lot of different things happening, in which there's consolidation, in which there's continuity, in which there's innovation, in which we have you know a real kind of decentralization, right? No more Khatsur, no more of of a couple of big tell sites and the presumed hinterland under their control. And of course, we get the emergence of other kinds of indications of polity. So in the the lower Galilee, um, the site that I excavated, Telling Sipori, where I suggested many, many years ago that, you know, because there's this large monumental building that has benches and that has all sorts of strange kinds of things in it that that would suggest some kind of local political control over a very, very small discrete area, the Nahal Sipori and this little valley. And that these are the kinds of polities that existed in the Iron One. Small village-based, not states. These are not village states. I don't know what a village state is, but that these are just small autonomous villages. That's why the word polity is so useful because it, can mean whatever you need. Well, need. yes, well, and, yes, and no. I mean, it, that's what was irritating me. That <clears throat> okay, so this is a polity. Was it? Were they rural elites? You know, clan right. clan people. Well, I can't let me rephrase that. Yeah, really. <laughs> Let's start talking about the clan. <laughs> Leaders of of uh, various lineages who sat together on benches and deliberated. Right. Or, or is this a chieftain? And that, of course, is another word. That, Which is another right, word. That but means uh, nothing anymore. This is sort of the point. If you say polity, it means you don't have to make a decision. Right. It's like calling something cultic. Right. That's true. I don't know what it is. It's crazy. It must or be is cult. it a warlord? It could and, be a warlord. And actually, you know, historically, in, <clears throat> in much later periods, this area of the Upper Galilee, Southern Lebanon, is as the author of this very, very good article mm-hmm. pointed out, was a center of a kind of warlordish, sure, yeah, phenomenon. Yeah. yeah, I like that aspect of the article. I like that little aside. And about you know, the 16th, 17th century. And we really don't, um, we really don't theorize warlordism <laughs> in <laughs> in the archaeological record of of the ancient Near East or pre-modern That's not Near true. East. That's not true. Every single discussion, I'm interrupting you. Every single discussion of King David uh, uses the phrase 
warlord. Okay, that's not archaeological. Staying <laughs> out of it. <laughs> so, you know, you, you've sort of been hoisted on your own guitar no, 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 there. Because no, now I'm going to, well, I'm going to let you finish your thought, what but then are, I'm going to bring up the oh, whole thanks. judges thing. No. <laughs> what are the archaeological correlates of warlordism as opposed to fanciful um, explorations in cultic texts of much later periods, which glorify power and courage and blah, blah, blah. What would you want to find that would, that would exemplify a warlord archeologically? <laughs> maybe I'd like to find uh, someone who would answer a question without a question. <laughs> nah. Well, I would want to find some kind of, you know, militaristic bent for like a fortress, like a for, like a fortress, <laughs> like with weapons, like with okay. militaristic iconography or the, right. well, although in these generally, you know, in the iron one, <clears throat> which is, if not a dark age, it, it's certainly not a particularly wealthy age. <laughs> well, let's just say. If they were communicating deep thoughts, it was in ways that are not represented in material culture. But that's fine. Or writing. <laughs> right. But, or writing. But that's fine. I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm going to take it the other direction. And at risk of being, I don't know, booed or shunned, um, I'll bring up the book of Judges, the biblical book of Judges, where it's understood. I think it's still understood, although my scholarship goes back, what, like 30 years um, that, um, that, you know, it, although the Bible presents the judges as, as consecutively ruling, it's understood that if indeed they are representing real people, they were ruling contemporaneously of, over different polities in the larger landscape. So here we have, you know, a Northern polity in a sort of rural area. And it's, it's uh, to me, if one wanted to bring up the Bible, which clearly I do, because I, I was going to say, yeah, because yeah. you keep doing it. Um, yeah, you're really, um, you're putting the belt back in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I might be doing that. But uh, this, this is the idea of a small polity up in the north is not antagonistic to um, the uh, generally accepted historical approach to the book of Judges. Well, and that's, and that's fine because you have rural sites that are, you know, <clears throat> somehow seem to be politically independent all over the, the Southern Levant in this period, all over the lower Galilee, like, um, like Tel Ainsipori and Wet over to the west, places like Ein Chagit, and all over Samaria, there are these these places. Um, so we're talking about a, a period of <clears throat> I don't know uh, state formation, or, or what com what what comes before whatever they were, what comes whatever they were secondary state formation, or tertiary state formation, <laughs> quaternary state formation. Or, or just just the idea of a little power vacuum, right? Because you got big stuff coming and going, and this little region just isn't really involved in any of it, and they have a little moment of. I, I've got to just interrupt here. I think this is the most unfocused <laughs> discussion we've ever had, and that could be. And, and I think part of the reason why is 
<laughs> because we, we all know a little too much about this. Yeah. Yeah. And we all have very fixed ideas. Yeah, that's true. So, <clears throat> but, they're all, but they're all very different ideas. They are very different ideas. I think that they're, I think it's just a very decentralized period in which you have village polities of different scales and that uh, there are also probably pastoralists, sure. pastoralists who are part of the landscape. And this is all a, you know, roughly 200 year period, let's say roughly, in which all of these little nascent groups, and I always like to think of it at the village level, and because the Hebrew Bible talks about village elders. And so we know that they're on the land, uh, they're in the landscape and that they're all starting to, you know, they're all starting to put you know, jockey. Put, right. They're jockeying around. They're yeah. jockeying and they're building. Right. And right. they're competing and they're cooperating. And the ultimate outcome of all of this is some kind of state, some kind of very small scale state in the 10th century that lasts for a very short period of time before it devolves into, you know, really one kind of city-state, Jerusalem, with an extensive hinterland. Mm -hmm. and, and Jerusalem and its hinterland are no bigger than Ugarit in the late Bronze Age, right? I mean, maybe the hinterland is, is slightly larger than Ugarit's hinterland, but it's certainly not wealthier than Ugarit's hinterland. And in the north, you have, you know, a period of, during the Omrides, a period of a real kind of small scale state that, you know, sort of unpacks, is unpacked until it is just a very small city state that is rudely destroyed. Right. Uh, very much on the, on the Phoenician model with some kind of Aramean touches, one might say. <laughs> Flor Aramean flourishes. Flourishes. And, uh, you know, the, so, so really we're arguing indirectly for the continuation of the late Bronze Age um, Canaanite city-state system okay. into the first millennium. But we, people tend to gussy it up into the level of national states where there's broader regional and ideological integration partly because they're retrojecting the image from the Bible backwards. Well, that's and, accurate. And, and partly because, yeah, there are kinds of signs of kind of regional ideology and regional integration, but it's not so tremendously integrated. And we know that in the interstices, and certainly the, the upper Galilee is the, an interstices of an interstice. I, I think when you look up the word interstice in Wikipedia, there's a there's an aerial shot of the Upper Galilee, it, possibly of this site <laughs> it, itself, and uh, yeah, and it's a buffer zone between two areas that that are more developed, and we know they're more developed. So right. the, uh, the Abel Teldon area is much more developed. The the tire Akko area is much more developed, even, even if these are not, you know, at their second millennium peak, peak condition. Right. So, and so the, the people in the interstices who are being buffered, who are trading, who are, 
in a no man's land and who are being neglected, who are having too much attention paid to them. They're doing their own thing. Right. Where people are doing their own thing. Yeah. Right. And they're certainly capable. And this is, of course, the other kind of. They're very capable people. <laughs> yes. No, this is the other thing that sort of struck me. It's not hard to build this kind of a building. You no. don't need a lot okay. of people. You don't, you know, it's not. Royal, ar royal architects. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and in some way, it's, it's sort of a, a lower level version of, of a similar kind of structure that comes about 150 years later, um, also on a sort of a buffer zone or a border zone, uh, Herbert Rosiat, which we know right. much more about because Herbert Rosiat had its contents all, you know, well-preserved in it. And so we can make a lot of inferences about Herbert Rosiat based on its contents. And there's a little bit of classic biblical historical geography that we can apply to the site mm -hmm. and suggest it's Kabul and it has this kind of biblical pedigree. Um, and, and it's also clearly on some kind of a, you know, Phoenician Israelite fault line. Uh, and so we have a lot of circumstantial evidence to, you know, support these kinds of inferences. Whereas at um, Haradir, <laughs> you know, we're, we're really, we don't have a lot. Yeah. And, and a lot of the inference building is based on petrography. Right. And, uh, and the settlement know, pattern. Right. And, right. and the movement of pots in periods of decentralization is, you know, not well understood. I mean, pottery can move and, and the quantity of pottery that they have is not a lot. Right. right, it's like 85, 85 vessels or something. Exactly. So you're not talk, talking about a lot of pottery. A lot, a, a certain amount is local, locally made and produced. Uh, and then we have store jars that seem to be coming from the coast uh, and might be, you know, imported and might have, you know, some Cypriot or Phoenician kinds of flourishes. But um, in terms of a whole scalar examination. Haradir is kind of small scale, really small yeah, scale. Right. It is, absolutely. It's a building with 85 pots of which there are, I don't know what, X, you know, 20% of those pots are store jars. Mm -hmm. Right, as you would expect on top of a mountain where you have to, you know, sh schlep every drop of water or something. Right, right, you have to import all your yeah. food from somewhere. Right, but what, what's interesting is that... Uh, in an earlier era of, of archaeological thinking, somebody could, could have and probably would have looked at this site and said, oh, it has 85 storage jars of this. With well, 85 pots. 85 pots, of, uh, you know, many of which have this kind of wavy uh, design, which is Phoenician, which is, which is also Cypriot. So it's part of the Cypriot Phoenician world it's a periphery it's integrated into it and <clears throat> it's possible to come up with a much more centralized kind of interpretation um, as opposed to us looking at it from the opposite direction saying this is this is a, an outlier where they have a, a bunch of pots right where someone the, built something someone who could, be, came. who could be very very local and right. at a very sort of atomic level as opposed to a molecular or comp composite level. And right. they, they built this construction for entrepreneurial reasons. 
or for self-aggrandizement. <laughs> Look at what I built. And, right. and, you know, if you build it, they will come. They right. built it and, you know, a couple and, of traders. But nobody came. People, the pastoralists, they all came. <laughs> Why did we build this? <laughs> yeah, right. It just didn't work. Right. Um, Another so, roadside attraction. Right, right. So, with, you know, and that's the whole, are you going to examine this top down? Are you going to examine this bottom up? Are you going to assume that um, that polities, that substantive polities exist and control a hinterland? Or yeah. are you going to assume that the hinterland is completely decentralized and is, you know, not part of, of any of these polities? Right. right. And 200 years, 300 years, 500 years later. Yeah. Okay. This is, this region is in a much greater, to a much greater degree integrated into the <clears throat> political landscape and then the we economic have, and, landscape. Yeah. And then we have, we have texts that help us out from, right. the, yeah, from the iron too. But, but there's we, a lot of permanence in some of these sites. So at um, Abel, there are, I think, four Iron Age one strata, and there's something crazy like two plus meters of of, uh, of Iron Age one material. So whatever's going on at a place like a bell is really substantial in the Iron Age, but also pretty insular. Not no, not a lot of indication of a lot of interaction based on the material culture. Right. Um, the same thing at um, Keene Rote on the on the uh, shore of the Kinneret, on the sort of um, northwest corner there, um, also a very a very high tell, mm -hmm. and you know hard to sort of get at and access. And there's a very substantial Iron Age one um, settlement there. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Such as okay, back to uh, yeah. So you have right. So you have these you know very substantial village sites like uh, Kinneret. And um, um, Abel, probably Don. Don is a little bit more problematic because the Iron Age one at Don is really sandwiched between two urban periods. So I think it has to be sort of understood in a slightly different way. Whereas at uh, Keen Rote and, um, and Abel, you don't have that same kind of sandwiching. There's no, there are no big, huge late Bronze Age um, city-states at the sites. Um, so you have to, I think, think about them a little differently. And I think that's the big, one of the big pieces, important pieces of the Iron Age one is that these sites are very idiosyncratic and they need to be first understood pretty thoroughly at the local level before you start building networks and interaction spheres and things like that, let alone start referring to them as some sort of chiefdom or village state or anything like that. Warlords. Warlords. <laughs> Um, right. And also it's, it's important to point out that we know fairly little, almost very little about what goes on to the north of uh, this particular well, right. Mm -hmm. into right. what is now southern Lebanon across the across the border in a geographically very similar mm -hmm. um, totally. setting. Right. And there are obviously going to be tons of sites of all periods, including this uh, this mysterious dark age um, as well. And <clears throat> when you go pretty far, it's pretty far to the sort of Northeast, you get to a site like Camino Lowe's at the bottom of the Bika Valley, 
which is not a terribly happening place in the early Iron Age, but it, there is stuff going on. Right. It's but off, it's like it's it off of its really... late Bronze Age high, as most places are, but, right. you know, so, so all of these sites, including this little teeny tiny one, exist in a very complex uh, <laughs> context. Right. Well, come on, we've, we've really completely deconstructed the word complex and complex. <laughs> right. Let's not all of a sudden embrace this notion uh, of complexity. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm pulling a 180. <laughs> Back yeah, to complexity. Because I don't think it's all that complex. I think it's very local. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's probably not all that complex. But, but it's interesting because we don't understand it fully. <laughs> Well, we don't it's, understand it because no one's been thinking about it for a very long time. Right. Okay. It's and complex that, because it's not so complex. Uh, <laughs> that's familiar. Yeah. So here, here's, what I've been, here's what I've been thinking, um, which is the reason we chose this topic is because we really hadn't talked about the Iron One in any of our podcasts. That's not, no, we talked about it in the writing. In the writing, yeah, absolutely. We talked about <laughs> in it our in 23 writing, writing um, episodes. Right, right. But that's... But that's Available for download on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Uh, but um, but we this, this is one reason we want to talk about because we hadn't really talked about it in terms of archaeology and tra transitional periods and polities that might be in the world. And what I've been realizing as I listen to us talk is, and now I'm going to break the fourth wall of... How <laughs> <laughs> uh -oh. uh, walls do we have? <laughs> oh, one, we're about to have one less, uh, is that because we sort of hope to aim our podcast between for that sweet spot between um, other archaeologists and academics and the general public, I think it's really hard to talk about this period in a way that um, it sort of gets both those constituents on board. For, fortunately, um, we reach none of those people. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, no, but don't, don't like, like the site of Haradir, it falls right in the middle in this right no in man's land. And it's it's a difficult period. When I teach the Iron One, I do talk about four room houses and so on and so forth, but I kind of go through it in, well, depending on the course, in like one class. And um, because it's very difficult to, to not get into the details, deep, deep into the details. Um, and classify this period. And You're very correct about that. I am right now in the middle of it, and I will end up taking three classes to do it because I love talking, going on and on and on about this. Right. Um, for the precise reason that it is difficult, but you're right. It is very hard to communicate. Um, and it's hard to communicate for the very reason that you can't use all these shorthands. Or if you do use all these shorthands, you're not really explaining anything. Right. So, I, I like to throw the word polity out there and not explain it to my students. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's something you want to admit. But <laughs> if, I, if I thought my students were listening, I might not admit it. It's but. a little <laughs> tiny political thing. It's a, it's a political thing. It's a political thing. Like that's a polity? all polity is. Right. <laughs> so everything's a polity because yeah, everything right. operates at some political, I mean, any any entity with human beings in it, because, you know, we're right. pretty political creatures. And in, in the ancient world, they were certainly just as political. Well, that about sums that up. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't imply, it doesn't say anything directly about ethnicity. Right. Except right. that they seem to be the same people biologically and thus ethnically as the people before. Right. Of the previous period. 
It doesn't even say anything about directly about the subsequent period when we have archaeological and historical textual evidence for states, states to the north, states to the east, states to the south. Right. Um, right. Uh, which well. have identities. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So should we do some final thoughts? I think one final thought is, is that um, mountain folk are always difficult to pin down. Mm. Hmm. That's a good point. Um, because of the sort of environmental, not to be an environmental determinist by any stretch, but certainly, you know, challenging topography makes for a lot of opportunity. Right, and it shapes their politics as well. Yeah. If yeah. you're living up there, you want to live up there. This right. is really and, an interesting point. Yeah. 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 And, you, you and, and, you know, right, it's the sort of the uh, the Wally Jumblat school of, you know, I'm on top of the mountain, and if you're going to come up here, you know, you, you better be careful. Right, and you better have something to say that I want to hear. <laughs> the earth um, is flat. <laughs> right. Well, that's what that's why, and again, to the credit of the author who points to the site of Tel Roche, which is 12 kilometers or so to the east, right, which is a bigger site, which has mm -hmm. stuff of this period, as well as much earlier periods. Um, that would be interesting because we're just sort of scratching the periphery of the periphery here. Mm -hmm. Right. And which might not be the best place to start. Well, but it's what we've got. Too late so. now. <laughs> we're, we're an hour and a half into these diatribes. Right. In our next hour, <laughs> speculate wildly about a site that hasn't been excavated. <laughs> um, uh, right. Okay. Well, so um, any other final thoughts? Rachel? I don't have any final thoughts. I thought you were going to ask for the, um, for the opening question, for the, what's it called? The lightning round? Um, uh, beach or mountain? Oh, oh, that would have been a good oh, one. That would I'm have gonna, been. I'm going to write that down that. for another time. <laughs> beach or mountain? Um, no, I had I had a much more complex uh, lightning lightning round <clears throat> because the site was described as in in the press at least as this mysterious fortress. What's it doing there? And the question was like the most mysterious place you've ever been <laughs> caused <laughs> confusion or dislocation. Oh. <laughs> but, but that was, that was just so absurd and abstract. That Sa I, save that one. We'll, we'll do yeah. that one another day. <laughs> well, we have to be in the right mood. <laughs> so the listener is warned. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, that was quite a misty mountain hop. So we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, educator in residence at the Savannah Music Festival, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Rocky Mountain Oyster Bar, conveniently located in the basement of Newark's beautiful Penn Station. To get in touch, leave us a comment or send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.